Yes. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. You know about Richie Valens, the 17-year-old pioneer of early rock and roll whose career was just beginning at the time of his tragic death in a plane crash in 1959. But this is not about Richie Valens. This is about his high school classmate, the girl he loved, and the subject of a song that would become a number two billboard hit, Donna Ludwig. This story is about a girl. The first time she ever saw him, it was at a car club party. Teenagers drinking beer and showing off their custom-rebuilt vehicles in the smoky San Fernando night. The hosting club was the Igniters, one of the many hot-rodder clubs in town. There were the poor boys and the road kings and lost angels and the lazy gents. Boys wore jackets with names emblazoned on them and slipped back their hair. Donna's father owned a Packard dealership in Beverly Hills, where he sold respectable luxury cars to respectable rich men. But hot rods were more Donna's style. She was a rebel, a leader of the pack, with her blonde hair cut boy short. It was 1957, and she was 15, coming of age during the first rock and roll era, one of the most exciting times to be a teenager in America come with a date tonight, and he was clearly already drunk. But she wasn't paying that much attention to him. Instead, she was looking at the boy playing the guitar. She thought she saw him looking at her, too, in between strums. And she wanted him to keep looking. She'd seen him before, in the halls at school, carrying around his guitar. She knew he liked music, but not much else. She didn't know he was this good, as good as any other rocker at the top of the charts. Then the boy started playing another song, We Belong Together. He sang it in a sweet husky voice, and he sang it directly to her, looking right in her eyes the whole time. That was when her date passed out. She didn't see the boy with a guitar for the rest of the summer, but when school started again, she ran into him in the hallway. This time, she asked his name. Richard Valenzuela, he told her. Richie. He spoke with a slight accent. His family was from Mexico, but he lived his whole life in California. She just wanted him to keep talking to her, and it seemed like he had the same idea. He didn't waste any time. Would you like to go to a movie? Of course she did. It didn't take long for Donna to fall for Richie. On one of their first dates, he told her that he was going to make it big as a musician and he was going to buy a house for his mother. He cared a lot about his family, it seemed, his mother and his siblings. He didn't smoke, he didn't drink, 
He was well-mannered. Donna was taken by his quiet self-possession and maturity, in such contrast with most of the boys she knew. Richie's mother, Concha, liked Donna well enough to teach her to cook Richie's favorite meals, tamales, menudo, and enchiladas. Donna's Packard-dealing father did not like Richie, though. He wouldn't have his well-brought-up daughter dating some Mexican. Donna, the rebel, didn't give a damn what her father thought. She'd sneak out of the house to meet Richie, and they'd go skating, or to a diner, or the movies. Simple things, just the two of them, boyfriend and girlfriend. At school, they'd meet up between classes. They would walk in the rain, arm in arm. With her head on his shoulder, she'd inhale his scent. Clean and masculine, soap and Old Spice. He'd grown up surrounded by music. Mariachi bands, flamenco, rhythm and blues, and the beginnings of rock and roll. He'd always wanted to make music of his own. He could play guitar, right-handed even though he was otherwise a lefty, as well as the trumpet and the drums. There was only one chink in the cool confidence he wore, an anxiety stemming from something that had happened earlier the same year. In January, an Air Force fighter jet had smashed almost head-on into a small commercial plane in the air over San Fernando, raining debris on the neighborhood below. The small commercial plane had nosedived after the crash, spiraling right into the playground of Richie's junior high school. Three students were killed, along with all four of the plane's crew. The impact left craters in the schoolyard. Richie hadn't been at school that day. He'd been excused to go to his grandfather's funeral. It was terrifying to him that he might just as easily have been killed along with those three students. Or he might have been one of the 75 who were injured. He still had nightmares about it. I don't think I'll ever get on a plane, he told her. It was scary to think about the random nature of these things. Anything could happen or go wrong in a moment, and there was no way to predict it. Sometimes there was no explanation for an accident other than tragedy. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Richie kept playing gigs around town whenever he could get them. He was already known as the Little Richard of San Fernando. His talent was such that word soon reached Bob Keen, the owner of a small record label called Delphi, who came to hear Richie play at a Saturday morning matinee at a movie theater. He thought the kid had something. It was Keen who decided he should perform with the nickname Richie because there were already a lot of Richards, little and otherwise, in the music business. And his last name, Valenzuela, sounded too... ethnic. No DJ was going to put a Chicano on the air. So Valenzuela became Valens. Keen helped Richie Valens cut a two-song record, and it did well. Come On, Let's Go became a top 50 hit in the summer of 1958. And when school started again in the fall, Richie wasn't there, deciding to drop out in favor of recording and touring. Keen booked him for 11 concerts in 11 cities across the U.S. He had to swallow his fear of flying to get through them all. For Donna, it meant no more meetings with Richie between classes, no more sneaking out to kiss at the roller rink. In October, 
Donna watched Richie appear on the hugely popular TV show American Bandstand. There he was, in black and white, shaking hands with Dick Clark. By then, he and Donna had decided they should just be friends. He was too busy for a relationship, and they were too young to be serious. She didn't think they'd end up together in the long run, either. She thought he was going to be famous, and that would be that. Still, she missed him. He called her one night. It was late in San Fernando, but still early evening in Honolulu, where Keane had taken him for yet another concert. Donna, I want to play something for you. It's a new song I wrote. Right now? Yes. I want you to be the first person to hear it. Is, is that all right? Donna said that it was. And then he started to sing. But it wasn't just any song. It was her song. She held the phone tightly in her hand as she listened to Richie crooning her name over and over, his voice caressing the syllables like something precious. When he was finished, she had tears in her eyes. Richie, she said quietly, I love it. It didn't matter that their relationship had ended or that he was miles away across the ocean. At that moment, in the middle of the night, she was a girl in a song a boy had written for her, and that was a wonderful thing to be. She had no idea then that he was planning on recording it. So, months later, when she was driving with friends and heard a familiar voice come on the radio, it was a total shock. Donna could barely hear the radio over the shrieks of a car full of teenage girls. But there was no doubt from the first words. It was the song Richie had sung to her over the phone. Her name. On the radio. It was surreal. Something small and private made larger than life. Bigger than she had ever imagined. By New Year's, the song was everywhere. It seemed like Richie's voice was singing her name on every radio in America. It was his breakout hit, hurtling up the charts the official soundtrack to the winter of 1958. She heard from him again in January of 1959. He was back in Los Angeles, he told her over the phone, but he would be leaving again soon for a package tour they were calling the Winter Dance Party. He'd be playing at dozens of venues all over the Midwest, and he'd heard it was going to be freezing cold, which he wasn't looking forward to. But, get this, Buddy Holly was going to be headlining. Richie was so excited to meet him. His family was going to throw him a party before he left. Obviously, she was invited. He missed her. Her father said no. And there was no way she was going to be able to sneak out this time. It was frustrating, but Donna reminded herself that one day she wouldn't live in his house anymore, and she started to count down the days until she would be free. When she told Richie she wasn't going to be able to make it, he was disappointed, but he said he understood, and they could always hang out when he came back from the tour. He left, and for a few weeks, she was back to her usual routine. Until February 3rd, a Tuesday. At some point that morning, she started to hear murmurs in the hall about Richie. That he was dead? Donna's mind shut this down immediately, and she shrugged it off as another ridiculous rumor. There was always some story about him going around.
around the school. One classmate told her directly, Richie's dead, Donna. Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper are dead too. They were in a plane, and it crashed. Donna still didn't believe it, but it's all over the news. Later, one of her teachers turned on the radio, and that was when she understood the terrible truth. She stayed home from school for a while. She wanted to be alone with the heartache she felt, with the mystery of Richie disappearing from the world. It didn't feel real. It was as if he was still on tour. She couldn't believe that Richie was never coming home, would never duck his head as she tried to smooth back his hair, never let her slip her hand into the crook of his arm, never laugh again, never sing her another song. No one she knew had ever died before. She'd never had to think about never before. Now that he was dead, Richie was more popular than ever. There was nothing the American public loved like a handsome young singer. With the tragedy of the plane crash, a legend was forming around him. The story of a young musician cut down just as he was on the way up. Donna, the song, moved up another notch to number two on the Billboard Hot 100. Whether she liked it or not, she was being wrapped into the legend. With America hungry for more details, the press quickly sniffed out that the Donna of the hit song was a real girl in San Fernando. Now the story was even better. It was tragic and romantic. A rock and roll Romeo and Juliet. Donna started getting letters by the thousands from fans all over the country who wanted her to know how sorry they were about her loss or wanted to know what kissing Richie had really been like or just wanted to feel closer to a Richie that they had made up in their heads. Reporters wanted to know all about her romance with Richie. Had they really been in love? Had they planned on getting married? Photographers took photos of her, manipulating her to sell their narrative, posing or holding Richie's picture, kneeling beside record players as if she was listening to his voice. In one picture, she leaned against a mailbox, the hood of her sweatshirt pulled tightly over her head. She wasn't in the mood for any of it, but people loved this projection of vulnerability. She felt most comfortable with Richie's family, his mother Concha and his sister Connie. At least their grief was for the real Richie, not some imagined version of him. On May 13th, Richie should have celebrated his 18th birthday. Instead, Donna went to a simple, solemn memorial service that his family held for him. There was a woman there who introduced herself as Diane Olson and told the Valenzuela family that she and Richie had been engaged. Donna wasn't sure if she was a hanger-on or she'd actually dated Richie. It wasn't impossible. He'd been away so much, and if he'd had a girlfriend on tour, Donna would have been the last person to know. Richie's family took Olsen at her word, and she moved in with Connie, but two months later, she disappeared for good. Maybe the woman had just been trying to hustle Richie's family. It seemed like everyone was trying to profit off his death. Another band, The Kittens, even recorded a version of Richie's song, using the same melody with the words they made up. It was called Letter to Donna, 
The lyrics assured her that Richie had loved her dearly to his very last day, that it was her inspiration that made him a star. It was pretty gross. Even her father, who had never liked Richie, decided he could at least make some money off his death. He pressured Donna into recording a two-song record on the pop label. Both songs were about how sad Richie's death was. Now that you're gone and lost without you. She only agreed after she got it in the contract that any profits would go to Concha Valenzuela. Donna wasn't a singer, and on the tracks her voice sounds thin and flat. She sings without much conviction. The record didn't sell. She felt mortified about the whole thing. The day she turned 18, she moved out of her father's house. She never visited him again. She was on her own now, but being the Donna, Richie's Donna, wasn't over. She found work as a nightclub hostess in L.A., and one of the other girls told a patron who she was. It was Red West, one of Elvis Presley's body men. West called her up one night and asked her if she wanted to go on a date with Elvis. The king was known to date teenage girls, but when she arrived at his penthouse at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, all he wanted to do was ask her questions about Richie. Had Richie known how to read music? Had he written his own songs? It was as if he was comparing himself to a rival. Even though Richie was dead and had never reached Elvis' levels of success, she went on other dates with other boys, and the year after, when she turned 19, she married one. He was a musician, just like Richie, and even looked a little like him. Donna would later think her hasty marriage was just a way of coming to terms with what had happened. A decade later, the musician Don McLean wrote about the day Richie died. His seminal eight-and-a-half-minute single, American Pie, was a tribute to a time of national innocence, an idealized era of purity wrapped up in the passions of adolescence and paired away by the upheaval of the 60s. By 1971, when the song was released, many were too young to remember that horrible day in 1959. And of course, the song spoke directly to Donna. It was impossible not to think of Richie when she heard it on the radio, and she heard it often. By the following summer, it had become a number one hit, and everyone wanted to know about Buddy Holly, The Big Bopper, and Richie Valens again. By 1987, music had changed so much that she didn't think anyone still cared about Richie. That was when she got a script for a movie about Richie's life, to be called La Bamba. The studio and the director, Luis Valdez, wanted her to consult. The first script hadn't been right at all. Richie was painted as a tough guy, and in reality, he hadn't been like that. And there were too many sex scenes between her and Richie. She supposed she wasn't surprised that Hollywood productions would always embellish to make things more exciting, more salacious than they had ever been in reality. But it offended her, and Donna wasn't shy about how she felt. In reality, she and Richie had never gone all the way. He'd been a great kisser, but that was all. She told the studio that she needed reassurance that they would change it. She would contact a lawyer if she needed to. But Valdez shifted course. In the day the movie premiered, Donna's stomach was in knots. She wasn't sure what to expect. It was something minor, a brief scene where she and Richie went to a drive-in that got her. 
The Coke bottles the actors playing them had were just right. She remembered it so vividly. She ran out into the hallway to cry. La Bamba proved to be a box office success. It was praised by the influential film critic Roger Ebert, and the next year, it was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Drama. More important than that, however, was that it brought Richie's story and his music to a new generation. Sometimes, Donna would dream of Richie. Most times, it would be the Richie she knew. But other times, it would be Lou Diamond Phillips, the actor who had betrayed him in the movie. And then Donna would wake up feeling foolish. You knew Richie, she'd have to remind herself, not Lou. People would ask her every so often if he was the love of her life. She knew they wanted her to say yes. But she couldn't, not if she was being honest. She'd liked Richie a lot. She'd cared about him. But love was what she felt for her mother and her sister and her brother. She'd been 15 years old, for heaven's sake. What had she known about love? Tell me about your life since those halcyon days of the rock and roll era, a British newscaster asked her. It was 2006. Donna was wearing a royal blue dress. Her hair was still the way it had always been, a short blonde crop. She was standing in the studio next to Peggy Sue Guerin, Buddy Holly's Peggy Sue. Over the years, so many people had wanted to interview them together that they'd become friends. When Peggy Sue's husband was marketing his drain-clearing service, the Rapid Rooter, Donna had done a commercial for them. What had her life been like? Well, in a lot of ways, it had been normal. Donna was on her third husband, and the third time seemed like the charm. And she had two daughters. They'd grown up bragging to their friends about how their mom had a song written about her, even if the friends had no idea who Richie Valens was. She'd become a manager at a mortgage company in a Sacramento suburb. She'd stayed the same tough tomboy she'd always been, holding her own with the men she worked with. She liked her career. She never went out of her way to tell people who she was, but they would inevitably find out and ask her what it was like to be a part of rock and roll history. She couldn't tell them. Richie was the one who had made history. She was just someone who'd known him for a little while. As the years passed, however, she thought that she understood it more. Richie's career, in earnest, had only lasted for eight months. If he had not gotten on the plane that night, she thought, he would be even more of a legend. On the level of Elvis, Chuck Berry, and the many others they'd listened to back in their days of innocence, undoubtedly. But he touched the world in his time inspired countless people, and she was one of the lucky few to have known him, to have had his friendship, his love, and to have inspired him. For many, she was a tangible connection to him. Every February, the surf ballroom in Clear Lake, the last place Richie ever performed, held a memorial concert. Impersonators of Richie, Buddy Holly, and the Big Bopper would play their music. They invited Donna, and she gamely showed up for several years. It was a nice time. While it was weird to see lookalikes of the long-dead teenagers she dated up on the stage, for a moment, the three of them would be alive again, 
evoking the joyful memory of that time before the music died. Only a few miles away, at the very spot the plane had crashed, a memorial had been erected. Three vinyl records and a guitar etched in metal for three names. Every year, there were flowers, notes. Anything fans stopping by to pay their respects felt compelled to leave. Richie had only been 17 when he died. Though his career had spanned barely a year, it had included two hit records. Such promise left unfulfilled. Where might Richie have gone? Who could he have become? His family, friends, and fans could only speculate. But in the brief time that he did have, he left an enduring mark on the music world. Because the music hadn't really died on February 3rd, 1959. It had just begun. People come to me and say, You're Richie Valens, Donna. And that's important because they haven't forgotten, she said in an interview. Richie Valens' dedication to his craft at an early age paid off when his dreams burst forth into reality, resulting in a sadly brief but remarkably fruitful and influential career. Millions who never knew him, plus generations to come, became captivated by his legend and enthralled of his music. But this isn't about them. This is about Donna Ludwig, just a high school student whose first young love happened to be a gifted musician, a boy who always reached back for her on his way to stardom. This is About a Girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created, written, and narrated by me, Eleanor Wells, with additional writing and editing by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer and mixer and provides music and editorial support. Audio editing by Matt Tahaney. If you like the show, please subscribe to About a Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave a rating and review. For more great shows from Double Elvis, visit DoubleElvis.com. That's DoubleElvis.com.